when you need a hand. We all need somebody to lean on. I just might have a problem that you understand. We all need somebody to lean on. Lean on me. Series. You just heard Timex Social Club and Club Nouveau. They are the brainchild of the incomparable Jay King, music label owner, producer, songwriter, vocalist, and media personality. His music was just featured in the movie Us by Jordan Peele and has spawned the last 30 years of great commercial use by everyone from Ashante and Chris Brown and, and commercials and movies, you name it. This awesome interview with Jay and I are coming at you right now. Okay, Jay King, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. I uh, wanted to get someone from uh, the era of the 80s, 90s, and even today, congratulations on being on the soundtrack for us. Were, were you surprised that uh, your music was chosen for the the, the movie by Jerry Yeah, anytime somebody puts your music in a film, of course, you know, I mean, like I don't know Jordan Peele. Mm-hmm. Um, if I knew him and said, hey, man, uh, you know, you need to put my music in your movie, and he did it, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd still be yeah. here. But I mean, it's a testament, though, to uh, the, the hard work that you uh, have put in over the years. Uh, how long have you been in the music industry? And first of all, where are you from? And what got you to the point of music? Well, I, I grew up in music in my family, you know, um, playing instruments, mother and father, a music, avid music listener. So I grew up in music in the house. Um I'm from Northern California. I grew up in Sacramento and Vallejo. Uh, but I also made a stop in Alaska. So those are my three points of, of entry. You know, Sacramento and Vallejo. My mother lived in Sacramento. My father lived in Vallejo. So between the two homes. And then um, 
aluminum air force and getting in the air force and staying in Alaska. And so when I came back um, to the lower 48 to Sacramento to um, do music, um, it was from coming from Alaska, and I loved Alaska. So all the different places I lived, I really they were good for me, um, mm-hmm. good people and all. And so music was just in my spirit. Uh, you know, I, I've always loved music. Beautiful. Now, going up through, say, teen, preteen, you know, what type of music would, you know, what grabbed you? Was it the instrumentation? Was it the, the message, uh, lyrics, what? It was, you know, it was all of it. You know, James Brown was just infectious. With his beat, Marvin Gaye made you feel some kind of way. You know, the Doobie Brothers, uh, even when they're, Oh, black water, keep on rolling, Mississippi moon, won't you keep on shining on me? You know, so just melody, lyric. Uh, my mother turned me on to so many different styles of music, like bread and seals and cross and stuff like that. So, you know, I just loved the way music made me feel. It was a freedom, it was a... It was a beauty. Sometimes it was the pain, you know. Um, I remember when I heard Alone Again, Naturally, by Gilbert O'Sullivan. You know, even if I hear that song today, it does something to my spirit. It just puts a melancholy over me because it's such a sad song. But it's such a beautiful marching beat to it. I just, I loved it. So, you know, music has always spoken, spoken to me. You're mentioning uh, the, the era of music of the 70s. So when we roll past um, the Gilbert O'Sullivan and even mid-70s where you're talking about the Doobie Brothers, we're talking about pre-Michael McDonald uh, with Blackwater, you get into the 80s, you get into the dance, you know, past disco and all, and we're hearing um, the beats. Uh, not only hip hop or the beginnings of rap of you know the message music, which kind of drove a different tone for what you would be doing with Timex Social Club and Club Nouveau. And before you get there, what was the driving force behind you getting into the music business? Because you didn't get into it in the seventies; you got into it in the eighties, right? Well, in the seventies, I'm a kid. <laughs> I'm not. Oh, right, I'm, right. I'm not a grown-up until I'm. I'm not. I'm in 1980. I'm only 18. Yeah, so, some people get in pretty early, and well, no, um, so not, we were just trying to determine: was it? Um, but yeah, were you one of those people? They we got that got in um, as an early, uh, you know, uh, teenager, preteen, or even 20s? Because some people get into it before that. In our business, in that era, people were getting in the business in their mid twenties, which is what I got into the music business, twenty three, okay. twenty two, twenty. So, um I, you know, it was just it was a, a progression from being a songwriter, a producer, and um and then, you know, an artist because the group that I was producing signed a contract with somebody else, which was a time at Culture Club, and I didn't have a contract with them because I was not yet um Versed enough in the music business to knew, know that I had to do that um, mm-hmm. because I thought we were friends. So, what are your first steps 
on that journey, um, how are you fitting in and what was your journey getting to um, the Timex Social Club? What do you mean? Um, I was a songwriter, I was a producer. I was six. I was producing mm-hmm. the record on my independent label, mm-hmm. you know, J Records. Okay. And J Records, what uh, year are we talking about? With 1986. 1986. Yeah, that um, came out. 1985. Okay. I was, in December of 1985, I released it in February of 1986. How did you come to the group? Was that group come to you? Marcus Thompson was a friend of mine from, um, from Alaska. Um, and he had a brother, um, and his brother, um, was one of the guys in Atomic Social Club. And then they mm-hmm. had this idea for this song, and they needed a producer. Mm-hmm. So they met me, and I um, I liked the record, and I thought that it needed some some work. And um, they let me arrange it and work on it, and they hated the song when I was done with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. They didn't like it. No. Wow. That's the creative differences right there. How were you able to persuade them to cut it? Well, it was already cut. When I was done with it, once I mixed it, they said I changed the record. They didn't like it. Mm-hmm. They didn't like the sound I added. They didn't, you know, they were just not happy. And um, But I didn't care. You know, they weren't, the, they were just artists to me. I'm, I'm the producer. I'm the record company. And you got to let me do what I do. You know, you know, record is done. If it's not a hit, you can go on about your business. If it's mm-hmm. a hit, you got you got to look at me and give me some credit. Right. But they but they and the only reason I ask it like that is because um, I've heard that done many times where a group will go in and, um, you know, a producer will see a different vision for something, and that vision winds up to be a great success. Yes. And it was, you know. Three and a half million albums, late, singles later, you know, they um they still hated it, but they couldn't they couldn't deny the fact that it was a hit. The lyrics, uh, and not just the lyrics alone, but the way that a song is put together, um, fit right in not only with um, rap and hip hop evolution, but the lyrics were timely in what was going on for that particular time. So you hit on the pulse of America and the buying public. What happens to a group when they have that type of success? Are you all ready for that type of success when it hits? Well, I mean, you know, um, the the results tell you that not. In, in this case, the record wasn't even a hit yet. It was just going, it was starting to be a hit. The buzz was started. And I didn't have a contract with these guys. I never signed mm-hmm. a contract because we were all friends. And so I thought that we were together. And I didn't know that they had signed a contract with somebody else until it was already done. It was too late. And so you know, there wasn't much I could do. Wow. So that's what happened with the uh, Tenex because they only had that one hit. So you guys... Well, no, it, no, no. They, they they made a whole album. They made a whole but, album. Yeah, but you never heard it. They only made one. They made one song with me, 
They did an album after that, but but it went double wood. You would have heard it if you were at the house. Mm-hmm. But that's the only way you would have heard it because it nobody else bought it. And we did Life, Love, and Pain, which sold two million copies. In learning your, um, you know, learning your lessons from that particular um, experience with the people, who do you work with with Timex Social Club and cross over to Club Nouveau, or is it just completely new when you have well, to, you know, redo? Well, Val- first of all, Timex Social Club isn't really a group yet. It's just a concept that we're putting together. So, mm-hmm. Marcus Thompson, Alex Hill, and Michael Marshall are the Time Social Club. Alex Hill mm-hmm. is the musical part of them. Um, and Michael Marshall is the voice. So I add Valerie Watson to the group because they were three ugly guys. Not one of them were cute. And I said, <laughs> we had to have somebody good looking in the group, and we had to have another voice to play off of Michael because Michael had an interesting voice. And Valerie also had a very interesting voice. So when the thing broke to, broke apart, me and Valerie formed with Samuel Denny and Tommy and I were doing the production part. So me, Denny, and Tommy, and then Valerie, who was Tommy Closer Club, and then we added Samuel, and that became Club Nouveau. Your choice of Lean On Me to record that uh, Bill Withers hit that had been um, a hit probably a decade before. Um, 15 years. Oh, wow, that long. Um, yeah. You put a new spin on that and won a Grammy. <laughs> As you stated, you know, we grew up listening to music in the 70s. Uh-huh. So, we were, so we were acutely aware of melody and lyric. We knew how important those two things were to a song because we grew up in the era where those were the primary components of a let of a song. Right. And so 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 we were the first of the new school and the last of the old school musician in our heads. Because here come drum machines and all these really cool sounds and keyboards. And then, you know, and then you had that renaissance of of British pop soul music with, you know, the A B C band. Tell me, tell me how to be a millionaire. You know, Rock Me Amadeus, um, Blinded Me with Science, uh, you know, um, Thomas Dolby, um, Joe Jackson, Stepping Out, um, Tears for Fear, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Shout. So we were really um, experimenting with those types of sounds and melodies. And and you know and it just it just became a music, a musical um, odyssey so to speak. So it mm-hmm. was just a mixture of what was there. So when we did Lean on Me, 
we the one thing we didn't want to do is disrupt the melody. Right. So Bill Withers' melody is some time in our life we all have pain. We all have sorrow. And our melody is some time in our life. We all have pain. We all have sorrow. We didn't change the melody. We just sped it up. Mm-hmm. So it was important to us that the melody stayed intact. And then we wanted to make an original enough rhythm that we could make it brand new. So mm-hmm. it's difficult to make a song brand new when you're using the same old melody, right? Right. And that was the that was the difficulty, finding the right groove. And we just happened to be listening to songs. Um, you know, this is when BET, before it became the big conglomerate that it was, you could listen to BET late at night and Groups like Red and the Boys and Chuck Johnson and um, 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 Chuck Brown, I mean, and the Soul Searchers and stuff like that would play on BET all night. Wow. You know, so we listened to a lot of the go-go beats. And then we had then we had gone to the Caribbean, you know. And so we are just putting all those songs together, that go-go rhythm, that we be Jamon, we be Jamon, man, hey. And mm-hmm. just where we were, just in the moment, so a lot of the music came from the moment that we were in. That's beautiful. Um, in that era of uh, uh, 86, 87, uh, of course, yeah. you get the Grammy for uh, the remake. Uh, did you ever hear from Bill Withers? <laughs> well, me and Bill used to talk all the time. I love Bill, you know. I love Bill. Bill is one of the few songwriters that writes songs that are so brilliant mm-hmm. that hundred people can remake his song and it can be remade a hundred different ways because he leaves so much room for interpretation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we used to talk all the time just about melody and about lyric and, you know, about why he hated the music business, you know, because he was a pure artist. So, you know, the publishing stuff was, was funky for him. You know, him not, you know, uh, you know, um, having a publishing deal that, you know, not really understanding publishing and not knowing that somebody beating you out of your money by mm-hmm. taking your publishing when you didn't have to give it up. But I know now he's probably getting all his stuff back because of the, because of the, mm-hmm. well, not that stuff because it was pre-1978. Anything after 1978. 35 years after his release, we get to get our, our master's back and our um, copyrights. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Yep. Well, yes. Back, now, uh-huh. Mine come back in 2021. <laughs> I um, got to see the movie. Us uh-huh. and your music is in there, and another song. Um, of course, you've got "Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad." I got five on it. Um, right. Some people have the misconception 
that uh, I got filed, and it was built on a sample of that Club Nouveau song. Can you talk about the controversy there? Well, it was built off the Club Nouveau song, Why You Treat Me So Bad. Mm-hmm. So, Mike Very Washington, um, so, so Why You Treat Me So Bad uh, is what they sampled, uh, what they played over. Tone Capone mm-hmm. was with me today, the producer of it. So he said, mm-hmm. Why You Treat Me So Bad? And and, I, and so there was no controversy. We got mm-hmm. I got fifty percent of it, and then they split fifty percent of it, and that, that's how it was. But it fits really well. Mm-hmm. So, so there's two songs, and the reason why we get credit of they treat me so bad is because when they're playing the music, they're playing "Why You Treat Me So Bad." Not I got five on it when the orchestra is playing it. You know, so when the mm-hmm. orchestra when it's the do doom doom do doom doom do doom doom do doom and it's real slow. That's just our music slowed down and that's why we get credit for it, but that's also given to the guy who arranged it. The the, the you know, the, the orchestra the guy who did the orchestration. So he gets his credit too. Mm-hmm. But so there's no controversy. Um you know, um, yeah, I just there was some similarity, and some of my friends were like, you know, that sounds like this, and that sounds like I'm like, hmm, but uh, it fits well in the movie, that's for sure. Yes, ma'am. Thinking about you came out in '86. Okay, think, okay, so no, no, so thinking about you. So let me tell you what happened here, because you said why you treat me so bad and why you treat me so bad. What you meant was thinking about you. If you listen to thinking about you, thinking about you is a totally different rhythm. Of course, we had some similarity because we are we are all in the same camp, mm-hmm. and now and now we're broke off from each other. So there's going to be some similarities in the style. But if you listen to Thinking About You, Thinking About You is a, a quicker, a faster song, a different rhythm, a different melody, a different lyric. You know, uh, there's some similarities in you know um, uh, the the um doom but, but even that is different. Right. Even, even that, they, they don't even, ours is a slow, drawn out, even, even just rhythmically, if it was a controversy, it would have been a controversy in 1986. Mm-hmm. But it was never brought up in 1986 because there was no similarities. Nobody even heard of similarities. Um, I wish it was a renaissance short where we worked more and all that stuff, but we're going to do 40 dates a year, every year, like we always do. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to play through the same type of audience like we always do. Uh, our number one audience is going to be Latino like it always is. You know, that's what it is. You know, it's not like, um, you know, the only difference is that people are going to hear it in the movie and we're going to make, a, you know, I'll make more money from, from a copyright standpoint. Mm-hmm. Now, as for the music, you mentioned something really interesting. You hear stories about... Um, artists that uh, get into uh, or heavily into the drug scene, the party scene, etc. And that's something you said you never partook of. When you might be a small percent of people, you've seen some things over the decades, and you've been able to keep Club Nouveau, and Club Nouveau's been able to keep you and everybody together and still during those 40 days a year. Most of your contemporaries can't even say that. No, they can't. They can't, yeah. Well, yeah, none of us drink a small. I mean, I think Val might drink wine and her and 
it sounds from time to time, but we don't smoke and do drugs. If you see the group, the, the Valerie has four kids, but she weighs 103 pounds. She's in, she's a physical specimen. She's, she's in great shape. She's 55 years old and she looks 30. You know, she, Samuel is, you know, um, is the, the younger of us and he's 52. I'm 57. You know, but we work out. We, you know, you know, we, this is our job. Uh, we don't make it a big deal, like some big deal. It's just what we do for a living, and we love that we get to do music. We love music. We love working with each other. And uh, and we never, you know, it ain't like we, we got high before, and, we, and then we stopped. We, you know, we never, we just never, that wasn't our our deal. And um, so, and you hear it when you hear us live. You hear it in our voices. It's why Val and Sam still sound so great. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the music business. You just mentioned getting back masters and and whatnot. And uh, with your message music, you said to me before we even got on uh, with this interview, you said that uh, you always wrote uh, positive, uplifting music. But for most of hip-hop within the last 20 or so years, it's gotten to be um, not necessarily encouraging. What do you say to that and what happened? Listen, hip-hop is young people's version of the blues. Right. Music doesn't more than a um, uh, a mirror of the, the society we live in. You want to know what happened? What happened to in our country? I mean, we we live in a very hateful country where, you know, where um, love ain't the um, ain't the ain't the mantra of the day. You know, when you got president. That you know that call that, that I mean that have no decorum when you have um, lawmakers that are on both sides that mm-hmm. are only about what they can get and how they can access a vote, but not really about the people. So the music is going to reflect the society, and um, the unfortunate part is that it won't get better um, until society gets better. So. I don't love the music. I don't. I don't listen to it. It ain't edifying enough. I, I call them. I say, you know, they're like hamburgers. They're good while they're hot. Um, and artists will eventually have to ask themselves, Do I want to be a hamburger or a steak? And here I am, thirty-three years later, living off of a record that I made thirty-three years ago. So I'm excited about what music is. I know the value of it. Um, but I also know that there's some, there's also some great talent, some great young people that make some great music. It's just that, you know, hip hop has become the number one music and it's, it's, it's mainstream because, you know, it, it's a reflection of where our young people are and our reflection, and our young people are a reflection of what society has taught them to be. Which are open. Right. 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 And you just mentioned you got masters back. How important is it for African American artists to own their brand, their music, their masters, and, and taking control of their destiny? It's important for all artists to own their masters. Um, and the reason why it's important is because there's so much value in them, it's intrinsic mm-hmm. value. You know, if, us, if your song gets put in a, um, in a commercial, it could be as much as $2 million, $3 million based on mm-hmm. what the commercial is. So if you don't own the master, 
then you don't you don't get to collect that money. The record company or the the owner the owner of the master does, mm -hmm. and you may get fifteen percent of that money. So you get the, they get two million, and from that two million, they give you three hundred thousand. Does that sound good to you? That sounds painful. <laughs> that's painful. That's how important a master is. And then a master and a copyright are two separate things. So, you know, if you wrote the song and you own the master and your copyright, and let's just say you got $3 million on the, on the um, master side and you got $3 million on the copyright side. Well, you know, if you own the copyright, you get the majority of that money. If you don't, you get your portion of the pu publishing and your uh, or no publishing in your portion of the writing. So these are things that are really important. These are the mechanical parts of the industry that I believe independents have um, accelerated the education process for younger artists about. And that's why I love the independent process. You just had a uh, convention of um, great artists that come together on a yearly basis. I want you to tell our audience what's that about and, um, you know, uh, what can we look forward to from you and uh, that particular group of people in the future? You just had Cornell West uh, in town, right? Yeah, well, I had Cornell West and um, Kevin Tony from the Blackbirds, Reggie Calloway from Midnight Star, Stephen um, uh, Russell from Troop, uh, Lonzo Williams from World Class Wrecking Crew and all that stuff. I do this thing called the Creative Exchange. And the Creative Exchange is an exchange of ideas in all areas, not just music and music, education, politics, um, finance, and technology. And I do it every year. I mean, next year, we're going to, talk, we're going to deal with reparations versus the debt owed. I think we have to stop saying we're owed reparations. We're owed a debt for the crimes that were committed against us in our communities when they destroy communities like Florida, uh, like Tulsa, Oklahoma, when when the, the Creek Nation, the children from the mm -hmm. Creek Nation, received their property, their land, um, you know, was taken away from them after they gave it to them once they found out oil was on the land. You know, just different things, um, different um, communities that were burnt down even as we were segregated and we by the rules that they gave us and they watched our communities prosper and just started destroying them. And so um, then we're going to have that discussion. Dr. Cornell West, Benjamin Crump is coming to the next one. Chuck D is going to be at our next creative exchange, you know. So it's always different people from different genres and, you know, economists and stuff like that. And what we're doing really, it's really just to spark the conversation in the community. Um, that's um, great. No. That's great. Um, I think, uh, musically, I just wanted to throw this out there. We've had many of our um, African American landmarks, whether it be Apollo, the Howard Theater, um, you know, uh, the Regal, the Royal. Um, Fox is still running. But those used to be African American theaters, and some of them aren't aren't in existence anymore because, you know, of the bigger money once the stars made it. Don't you think it's also important for those African-American venues that still exist to be uh, considered national landmarks? Um, 
wouldn't that make sense? Because many people that we hear of today, from Gladys Knight and the Pips, the Supremes, and and others, would never it, it, even an, an early um, uh, not boys to men uh, before that. Bobby Brown came out of the group. <laughs> no addition. No addition. Yeah, they got their start at uh, one of those venues. I believe it was the Royal. The Royal, they could only save the facade of the building because it had deteriorated so bad. And, um, you know, you you see the white iconic places. People put money in them and, you know, want to resurrect them. And even with Howard University's Howard Theater, it, it seems like we get the monies and refurbish them and somebody else takes them over. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, you know, I don't know if that's such a big deal. I mean, you know, if somebody takes them over, we, you know, we, as a community, I say this. We want a lot, but we don't give nothing. Mm. We want, we don't want to put skin in the game. You know, we got to call our leadership out and we won't, we don't want to do it. Why are we so financially illiterate? Why hasn't the conversation ever been had on a national level by all these African-American, these black folk who have been congressmen and senators and and mayors and governors and um, presidents and everything else? Why haven't they, why haven't we ever said we have to become more literate financially? Why haven't we ever talked about the stock market? Why aren't we traders? Why, why don't we understand options and, and owning stock and the importance of them? You know, we, you know, there's a lot of things that we won't know, but, but there's a lot of things we don't want to do. So, you know, I say we gotta, we gotta get eyeball to eyeball with ourselves. Um, and call ourselves out and say, you know what, we gotta be a better community. We gotta, it's hard for people to love you if you don't love yourself. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, black folk got to get honest enough to say, you know, we don't love ourselves. Because if we loved ourselves, we wouldn't be killing ourselves. If we loved ourselves, we wouldn't let Black Lives Matter march when police kill kill us, but not march when we kill us, each other. We right. we demand that if Black Lives Matter, that Black Lives Matter when black people kill each other even more than when police kill us. So, you know, we have some... We have some explaining to do. Mm-hmm. 